Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offspring's offspring and the offspring of the people of the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Yisrael. Amen. Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. There was a famine in the land, aside from the first famine that was in the days of Abraham and Isaac, when Abimelech, king of, Philist of the Philistines, to Gerar. Or Isaac went to Abimelech, king of Philistines, and Gerar. Adonai appeared to him and said, Do not descend to Egypt. Dwell in the land that I shall indicate to you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your offspring will I give all these lands and establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will increase your offspring like the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your offspring. Because, say because. This is the most important word in this whole reading. The word because. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and, say and. That's the second most important word in this reading. And observe my safeguards, my commandments, my decrees, and my Torot, my Torahs. As in multiple Torahs, not just one. Abraham wasn't sola scriptura. He wasn't word of God only. Did you know that? You know that, did you know that, Torah, that Abraham believed in the oral Torah? Do you know why? Because when Abraham was Abraham, there wasn't a written Torah. It was all oral. Rabbi, you mean, you mean that Abraham didn't have King James? No, he didn't. He didn't have the Good News Bible either. Now, you could say he had the living Bible. <laughs> oh! No, no NIV. No. No, he had the oral Torah because it was all oral. Isn't that amazing? That those who believe only in the written Torah, they think that, that Abraham showed up one day and he found a book laying on the, on the, on the bima in the local synagogue. And that's how he started to believe the Word of God, because it, it was written. It floated from heaven in a, on parchment. That's not how it happened. That's not how it went down. So this is a very important passage. Let's uh, dissect it, shall we? First of all, this is a test. It's only a test of Isaac. Why does Hashem test the righteous to begin with? There was a famine in the land, aside from the first family that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, to Gerar. Why does he test? Why does he have to test Isaac? I mean, hasn't Isaac already been through the test? I mean, Isaac's test was really to lay down the altar, but really it was Abraham's test. 
Because it's one thing to lay down on the altar. You know, it's really something else to uh, sacrifice your own image. I don't know if you've ever, um, you know, sometimes you have crazy thoughts to go through. At least I do. I don't know about y'all. I have crazy thoughts to go my mind. I think about things. It's one thing about to think about somebody else who has to have, for some reason, maybe a medical reason or, well, normally it's medical reason, to have something amputated, like your hand cut off or your finger cut off or something like that. Uh, diabetes or an accident or a war injury or something to that effect. It's something to think about that happening to somebody else. But when you think about your own hand having to be amputated, that's a whole nother level. Because why? Because it's you. Like that's your image. Like your hand is you, right? Or your finger or your arm or whatever, your leg. And so laying down... For Abraham to lay down Isaac was a whole other level of faith than just Isaac laying himself down. You would think that Isaac laying himself down would be a high level of faith, because he, you know, and, and it was, but Abraham was laying down his image. He was laying down his hopes, his dreams, everything. But it says in Rabbi Monk's commentary on why does Hashem test the righteous, he brings down a quote from the Zohar, an insight rather from the Zohar, says, the Zohar considers this calamity as a test meant especially for Isaac. Why? Because God tests the righteous, as it says in Psalm 11.5. He tests Adam and Noah and both succumbed, whereas the patriarchs triumphed in their test of faith. God surely knows the hearts of men without needing to test them, but the purpose of a test is to give the servant of God the opportunity to increase in moral stature and to raise themselves to the supreme decree of perfection. The word for test, nisa, being related to nasa, which means to raise. This is Rashi's comment to Exodus 20 and verse 17. Then it says, Hashem appeared to him. So he's testing him with famine. He's testing him with a famine, which the last time this happened to Abraham... Abraham went to Egypt, but it was God's will that Abraham go to Egypt because that's how God was going to make, and one, fun, one reason, that's how, number one, God was going to make Abraham wealthy was to send him to Egypt. Number two, we're going about to read in a second, another reason that Abraham went to Egypt is because he wanted to witness to Egypt. He, was, he wanted to put out some tracks in Egypt. He wanted to be a missionary in Egypt. The third reason is he knew that that's where Abraham was going to find Hagar. And Hagar would eventually convert and become Keturah. By the way, uh, the vast majority of sources agree that she wasn't, Keturah was in fact Hagar, converted. And through Keturah, she would become Abraham's wife also. Okay? And that through her would come other offspring and blessing and so on. So there was a reason why he went down to Egypt. And so naturally, Isaac understood, hey, I, I guess this is, I'm going to follow in my father's footsteps and I'm going to go to Egypt. And I'll come back maybe with wealth or whatever. Or who knows what, what he was thinking. But he figured this was normal. But this, the test is, the test is there's a famine. That's test number one, just like with his father. But then in this case, Hashem says to him, do not descend to Egypt, but dwell in the land that I shall indicate to you. 
Now, from our point of view, we could look at this because the number one, all sin comes back to really one overarching term. Because like, a lot of people have an idea of what sin is, and sin is different to other people. Like some, For instance, somebody might say, well, I just think if you drink whiskey, that's just sinful. Well, it's not, but a lot of people think it is, you know. And there's a lot of things that people think are sin but really aren't, isn't really sin. There's biblical definitions, Torah definitions of things like that. And there's a lot of examples I could give. But if you actually look at the prophets, like we were reading in Malachi today, and we're reading in Jeremiah today, and you read in, you read in other prophets, or right now Haber is doing a study through the kings, which, which I'm really enjoying his, his Menashe minutes, which you don't get to see, but that's okay, it's an inner circle. I'm just kidding. Um, but what's fascinating is when you look at these prophets, you, like we read today, that God's ultimately concerned with one overarching concept, and that is the concept of avoiding idolatry. A lot of the sexual sin that's talked about in the Bible has to do with sexual sin that's done in the context of idolatry. A lot of the eating and drinking, the gluttony and things like that that's talked about that's sinful is done in the context of idolatry. So really when it comes down to it, our ultimate overarching goal is to avoid idolatry, to avoid serving other deities, being involved in their stuff, being involved in their programs, being involved in their festivals, which is the biggest problem we have in our own country with people who allegedly follow the Bible and believe in the God of Abraham, supposedly, they supposedly believe in the God of Abraham, they supposedly follow the Messiah of the Gospels, and yet everything they do is idolatrous. It just is. All of their parties, all of their festivals, the way in which they commemorate, supposedly, the God of Israel and the God of Abraham and the Messiah, all of it is, is, is patterned after false gods the gods of Rome. In fact, even the statues that they kiss that are supposed to be Mary and supposed to be Paul and supposed to be uh, Yeshua, th these actual statues are literally, uh, the original ones in the, in the Roman uh, region, are literally the statues of the false deities of Greece and Rome. Literally. Not, not figuratively. The statue of Mary is the statue Smetina. I don't want to say her name. That literally was her statue. And they, they, the church came along and said, you know what, that's no longer that goddess. That's now Mary. Yeah, the tree as well. The Asherah pole has now become the Xmas tree. So we talk, and so today is Shabbat Hagadol. This is a day, as Amet pointed out, that we chose the lamb, and it's also the day that... Uh, well, the lamb, and this is what Rebetzin was talking to me about. She's like, I just read this, and then Amet said it again. And that is that the lamb was the chief deity of Egypt. The number one, numero uno. That's why the Egyptians are so bad. Okay, all right.
But listen, I want you to think that what happened was the, 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 the great miracle, the greatest miracle that happened on Shabbat Hagadol was that we took the chief deity of Egypt, tied it up, took it into our house, and kept it for four days, making sure it didn't have any blemishes. The Egyptians wanted to destroy us, but they were powerless to do so, number one. They just had to watch us take their, their deity to slaughter. And number two, they said to themselves, we're surely going to die because they have tied up our God and bound them to the, to the post of their home. For the, for the Jew, remember that we were idolaters in Egypt. We were idolaters in Egypt. We were not serving the God of Israel. It's highly likely and very probable that the vast majority of us in Egypt also worship the Lamb. Which means that we had to take our paganism and slaughter it on the altar. And God's asking a great many people to do that today. Your paganism, your nostalgia for chocolate bunnies. And in a way, I believe this is why that the Lamb of God had to be crucified because ultimately, even today in Judaism, we are putting all of our hope in man. We want a man to save us. We want to, we're, we're demanding a human Messiah. Why? Because we, that is indicative of an idolatrous attitude that says humans can save humans. And God says, no, I need you to kill the human. I need you to slay the lamb because you're, you're, you're putting your worship in the lamb. This is why Yeshua, if you notice, Yeshua is divine, Yeshua is Hashem manifest, Yeshua is the Torah manifest, and yet he never says, worship me. He always says, whoop, talk to him, whoop, talk to him, whoop, talk to him. Why? Don't put your focus on the lamb. And so our whole issue is to serve God by serving God. This is why it says in Megillah, Tractate Megillah 18a, I believe it is. I hope I'm right about that. Where it says, when a Gentile turns from idolatry, he becomes a Jew. That's a 13a. Thank you, Amet. This is, this is why Sar Shalom is real. Like real people here. Giving me real insight. 13a, thank you. I was right. I just had the three and the three together as an 18 because I, I believe in high. But listen, there's, and we know that there's, there is uh, the mikvah and, we, and, 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 and there's circumcision to, be, to coming into cup. We understand that there's a, there are those elements. But what the Talmud is doing is boiling it down to the overarching idea that really causes someone to go from being out of the covenant and into covenant, and it boils down to this, the abandonment of idolatry, which means the acceptance and the one true God in his way. But here's the deal. You can't claim to abandon idolatry and then carry your idolatrous practice into the covenant. 
You can't say, well, I've abandoned idolatry except for I really, really like this old festival that we used to keep a long time ago, and, you know, and, and I really, really think it's awesome. So what I want to do is I want to keep that same festival. I just want to name the bull, the, uh, the golden calf. I just want to say that that's Hashem now because that's exactly what we did in the wilderness. We looked at the golden calf, and we, and we said, this is in the Scripture. It's in the Torah. We said, this is Hashem. We looked at the golden calf, and we named the golden calf Hashem. Before, it had been called oxymoron or whatever, but now we call it Hashem. So we take a, a holiday like Xmas, and we take the God, uh, 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 pardon me just for educational sake, Odin, and instead of calling him Odin, we now call him Santa Claus. Now he's a good little Christian putting out uh, gifts to the poor. Yeah, we know he was a false deity before, but that was before we became saved. But we wanted to leave idolatry, understand? But no, uh, we, 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 don't, we want to leave idolatry, we just want to bring it with us. Pack a little bit of it on our suitcase. This is what uh, Passover is all about. It's about leaving idolatry. It's about taking the blood of the lamb and putting it on the doorpost. The, you know, you ever wonder what it was that God saw in the blood? What he saw in the blood is my people have crucified, oh, I'm sorry, they have killed their idolatrous desire. They have subdued their idolatry in favor of my will. They no longer want to serve other deities. They no longer want to do these things. And let's face it. There's a lot of uh, fun stuff about some of these holidays. We're familiar with Schmeister and Xmas here in our culture, but I'm sure in other cultures there's other fun holidays, whatever they do over there in Asia and what have you. little baddie over there but I mean they may it probably enjoy there's probably it probably a lot of brings a lot of nostalgia like like the you know memories that they have but that's not <laughs> that's not what we want to do we want to slay the lamb so so listen God says to Isaac he says to Isaac um, don't descend to Egypt don't descend to the idolatry Don't descend to the object. You started out, Isaac, on a high level. And maybe it's because the reason Abraham was able to go to idolatry, this is, just, this is a rombell, perhaps the reason Abraham was able to go to, to Egypt is because he started out in idolatry and rejected idolatry and was able to go down to idolatry in order to lift up the holy sparks. But Isaac was born into sanctity. And so Hashem said, don't go to, don't descend to Egypt. The problem is, is that many of us who've come into sanctity have descended into Egypt. We've gotten into idolatrous ways, idolatrous practices. And again, a lot of times what we think is sinful is, the Bible doesn't think is sinful, but what we think is okay, the Bible says it's not okay. It's very common. A simple example would be, many people think it's A-OK -okay in the USA to eat shrimp and pork. God doesn't even care. But it's sinful to smoke cigars and drink whiskey. Oh, only the bad people do that. And, by, and, and, and the Bible says, actually, it's the opposite. I'd rather you smoke a big old stogie and drink a big old thing. 
of whiskey, but when you put the abomination in your mouth, that's when I'm upset. It's the exact opposite of what we think. Uh. You know, funny thing is, Mikael is out there somewhere just throwing stuff around his living room. But it's true. It's true. I mean, come on, you know. Some people say that a lot of things are sinful, but not. But God, it's funny when we actually find out what God hates and what he, what he, what he likes. It's, it's, not always, it's not always the same as our, our pop culture. But what's really sticking in my mind is this idea of idolatry. You've got to get away from idolatry. That's what Hashem ultimately wants. To do his will is to get away from idolatry. So Hashem appears to Isaac and says, don't go down to idolatry. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. So don't worry about, you don't have to go to idolatry to get the blessing. You know, this goes back to people that say, well, we have to have a smeaster service but, or, or, or people won't show up. God says, I, I can't bless you. I, I can bless you in the land. You don't have to go to, you don't have to descend to idolatry to receive the blessing. By the way, that's, and I know I'm preaching to the Levitical choir here, but that is such a ridiculous argument anyway. It's wrong. To continue, and you open your doors to bring people in. Well, we were doing this, so that's the only way to get them in. Well, no, it's not. If everybody would just stop doing it, everybody would stop believing in it. The reason they believe in it is because you, you teaching them to believe in it. And that's why they're believing it, because they're following you. See, if you're a leader, I'm going to tell you something. If you're a leader, this is what you need to do. One word, lead. Too many people think that they're leaders, but in fact, in fact of the matter, they're just spokespeople. A spokesman is not a leader. If you're going to lead, lead. If you're going to command, command. Take responsibility. Um, so it says here, Abraham says, I, I swore to your father Abraham that I will increase your offspring like the stars of the heaven and, and will give to your offspring all these lands and all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your offspring. Now, verse 5, I said, because is uh, the most important word. Before I get to that, let me share this one insight I almost forgot about. This is an insight going back to why did Isaac want to go to Egypt? Okay, what was his motivation? So the Hasidic insights brings this down. Isaac had considered going down to Egypt just as his father had, meaning having been raised by his father to believe in divine providence, Isaac assumed that the famine was meant to induce him to journey outside the land of Israel. There's nothing wrong with that. It's totally logical. But the question is, why did he think that that was God's will? And here's the why. In order to disseminate divine teachings there, just as his father had done. Isaac was looking for an opportunity to spread the word of Hashem. It says, but God told Isaac not to leave the land, thereby affirming 
that his particular mode of bringing divine awareness to the world differed from Abraham's. Now listen to this. There's a pattern here I'm about to reveal. So Abraham taught through outreach, traveling to his audience and tailoring his message to, to his listeners' ability to grasp. So Abraham is like the apostle who goes out. He's the, the missionary, right, who goes out. The shliach. But, but, but Isaac's mission is different. And there's a reason Isaac's mission is different because Isaac is a type of Mashiach. Here's what it says. Isaac, in contrast, was to focus on intensifying his own divine consciousness and that of his immediate uh, his immediate uh, core, the force, clarity, and vigor of this inner work would give Isaac a magnetic charisma that would draw the outside world, or can I just rephrase that, all men unto himself, and make them aspire to emulate him. So Yeshua said, if the sun be lifted up, then all men will be drawn to himself. That's exactly what Isaac was. Isaac was the one lifted up, so to speak, on the mountain and offered up on the altar. And as a result, he had a magnetic ability where people came to him. And it goes on to point out that this is exactly what happened in the, in Philist in the, the Philistines. They came to him and said, we've seen that God is with you. We want to be in covenant with you. Whereas Abraham was empowered by the Ruach to go out. Now, the reason that Isaac couldn't leave the land, ultimately, everybody agrees, is because, as Rashi brings down, it says, you are an offering totally consecrated to God. You're not to leave beyond the sacred enclosure of the land. Isaac was special. He was unique. It goes on to say in the commentary of Rabbi Monk's commentary that the verse teaches us that all the righteous should feel themselves strangers wherever they live in the world. Wait a minute. Not of this world is not new in the New Testament? What? We all feel like we're strangers no matter where we are because this world is not our home. Our actual world is gone again. Now we're all set apart for Hashem. And this is why we have to carry ourselves differently. We have to act differently. We have to dress differently. We have to eat differently. We're not allowed to get down into the mess that the world gets into because we also are on the altar. Speaking about being on the altar, though, there's something interesting because the question will naturally be said or asked, well, if Isaac was the offering, then why did there need to be another offering? Why did Yeshua have to come and be the Akedah again if he was the Akedah? I mean, wasn't, I mean, after all, he went to the altar, and there was a supernatural ram that was offered in his place. And so, you know, what's the big deal? Why does there need to be a redo? Well, it says in the, in the Humash, in chapter 22, uh, there's a commentary to chapter 22 uh, to the second verse, about Mount Moriah, and it says, In thinking that he was to slaughter Isaac, Abraham did not misunderstand God's first command because the general rule is that once an animal is designated as an offering, the entire sacrificial service must be performed. For example, 
If someone were to sanctify an animal, he could not discharge his obligation merely by placing the animal on the altar, but then taking it down. Only God could tell Abraham that Isaac was to be brought up, but not to be slaughtered. So in this case, Abraham is off the hook because God said, don't kill him. But the Akedah is still incomplete because an, a, a substitute offering cannot take the place of one that's already been dedicated. So in other words, once the son was dedicated, there had to be an equally valuable offering to take its place. And in this case, Yeshua, who is of a higher level, you can't substitute a son, substitute a son with a ram because it's like saying I'm going to substitute a, a pigeon for my ox. You have to substitute the son for the son in order to complete the offering. So the Akedah was incomplete, uh, incomplete until Yeshua came to complete it, which is why there had to be two. Now, why was Isaac blessed exactly? Well, the scripture says that Isaac was blessed because Abraham had faith. Oh, you're right. It doesn't say that, actually. Y'all are like, what? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Actually, there's nothing really about faith in this verse. Isn't that interesting? It says, because Abraham obeyed my voice. It's about obedience. Nothing here in this verse about faith. I want you to understand something. Hashem is appearing to Isaac, and he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to fulfill the covenant to you. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to be everything to you that I promised Abraham I would be. And, and here's God's because. How many of you want to know God's because, or how many of you want to know man's because? God's because, right? That's the one that matters, right? You say, well, I know it says that in, 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 in Genesis, but, but Paul said... Now, I want to know God's because, not man's because. Paul had an opinion. He, his opinion might have been right, might have been wrong. It's still his opinion. I don't care about his I don't care about Peter's opinion. I don't care about Matthew's opinion. I want to know about God's opinion. What was God's because? God's because had nothing to do because Abraham believed him or had faith in him. I mean, you know, a lot of people have faith but no obedience. I mean, you know that. I mean, a lot of people have faith, but they collect Easter eggs normally when it's not a pandemic. See, God said, I'm going to bless you because Abraham obeyed my voice and he observed. Now, he could have just said he observed my commandments. Or he could have just said he observed my will. Or he could have just said he observed my Torah even. But God wanted to make sure that all the technocrats out there, they said, well, he didn't, he said that, but he was talking about the moral laws and not the civil laws, or he was talking about the uh, civil laws, but not the ceremonial laws, or, or he was talking about the written Torah and not the oral Torah. Uh, God says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down the whole list of all the types of commandments that I have, and then I'm going to conclude it by saying Torahs, so that nobody can say, well, he meant something to be taken out of there. This is why I'm choosing you is because Abraham was all in for me. Not just some of it, but all of it. 
That's why I'm blessing you. Because God, because Abraham, I mean, faith, sure, but that, that kind of goes without saying. Anybody can have faith. That's so easy. Anybody can believe. You know, talks about that even the demons believe and they tremble. He said, well, I believe God. If, if, if your faith actually did a credit to your righteousness, then every demon would be saved. If I ask somebody, you believe that, that, that the fallen angels and the demons are saved? They'd be like, no, they're going to hell. Well, they believe God. They have faith in God. Yeah, and they shudder. They're scared. All you got is faith. You, you, all you have is what they have. Y'all going to show up with the same argument. Well, they don't, believe, they, they don't believe in the Son of God. Are you kidding me? Legion said... Are you come to torment us before our time, Son of God? They believe He's the Son of God. So you're showing up with faith and belief that Yeshua is Yeshua. You say, that's what, they, that's what I've got. That's what the demons had. They don't think He's a man. That's, that's it. That's that's a that's a that's a that's a face mask, fifteen yard penalty. Wow, roughing the passer. I want you to think about this: what the demons have, or don't have, rather, that you're supposed to have is obedience. And by the way, that God controls the demons and He uses them, but. That's not the kind of obedience we're supposed to have. We're not supposed to have obedience that happens because we're so obstinate that God has to, you know, force us into a a path. You say, well, well, Rabbi, works can't save save us. By the way, who told you that? Oh, getting in some dangerous water here. Now, let me be clear. Let me be clear. Every Jew, when we get to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, everybody says, don't look at me. Look at the Akedah. Okay? So everybody believes ultimately that our mitzvah keeping doesn't, it can't get us over the hill. All right? But it's a fallacy to say, so since our works don't save us, we can just forget about it. We don't have to do anything. Because everybody who's saying, please, God, look at the Akedah, are all standing in the service in white garments blowing the shofar. You say, my works don't save me. Well, see, if you're sitting at home eating a chicken dinner on Yom Kippur, watching the ball game, you say, well, he's going to look at the Akedah. No, he ain't, because you ain't asking him to where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. And the person who said it's, it's, it's faith alone, no works whatsoever, none at all, is a Gentile, an uncircumcised one 
who's not in the covenant. And that's who you're listening to. You're listening to Goliath. By the way, you said, I don't believe in circumcision. Neither did Goliath. But, yes, but David said, when Goliath was coming out for 40 days and was blaspheming God every single day, and everybody else was kind of behind rocks, David, who was bringing cheese to his brothers on a donkey, David said, I, want to, I love David. We're going to go over today because it's Shabbat Haggadol. I don't even care. We're going, what are you going to do anyway? Where are you going? <laughs> David said, he's standing out there in the open. And Goliath was, telling, was saying, God, come down and fight me. That's what Goliath was saying. Goliath was saying, come down and fight me. I'll fight God. And David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? It was a curse. Someone says, I don't believe in circumcision. Neither did Goliath, but David cursed him and said, he's uncircumcised. Why do you say uncircumcised? He's not in the covenant. And David said, how come somebody don't go kill him? And his brother said, get down, shut up. What's wrong with you? You're so arrogant. Why we don't like you? And David's like, what? We're in covenant, y'all. God of Abraham on our side, he's uncircumcised. And they said, David, ever since Samuel showed up at our house, we've been unbearable. <laughs> and then the king came out and said, anybody can go down there and slay that giant. I'm going to give tax-free and you can marry my daughter, Micah. And David says, say what? I don't have to file a tax return with the IRS and I get to marry the, the king's daughter? Shoot. I'll be right back. Y'all, here. Eat some, eat some cheese and crackers. I'll be right back. He went down there and took care of that giant. Why? Because the giant wasn't in covenant. He was an uncircumcised Philistine. Now, you can say, well, I'm uncircumcised, but I'm, unco I'm in covenant. No, you ain't. If I can use proper English. Because to be in covenant is to do the will of God. The one who's not circumcised is still in the world of idolatry. That's like bringing your idolatry into the relationship. You can't do that. That's what's being said here. So God blessed Isaac because Abraham obeyed his will. This is why we're talking about, you know, there's a lot of people who believe in the Lamb of God uh, on the doorpost of the house. There's a lot of people who believe that. They believe that to be true, but they're not doing it. And here's the little secret that we all have to understand that when we say that we believe something, but we don't do it, we don't really believe it. That is something I'm telling you right now that so many people have deceived themselves into saying, I have faith, but I don't do anything, and you don't have faith. Oh, 
JC's my king. Do you do anything he tells you to do? No, he's not your king. Shabbat Hagadol, the 10th of Nisan. This is a day that has uh, brought down some important things about it. I want to share something about Miriam and the 10th of Nisan. The 10th of Nisan is a day that is associated specifically with Miriam. Yeah. Yeah. It gets, it gets better. Now, Miriam, of course, the well, that fo- the, the rock that followed us around the wilderness, literally followed us around the wilderness, was the well of Miriam. And Miriam is associated with the 10th of Nisan. Now, the reason that Miriam is associated specifically with the 10th of Nisan is because this was the day of her death. And this is the day when the water stopped to flow. But she's also the one who prophesied her brother Moses coming. And so she, obviously there's, there, that's why she's considered a prophetess. A year after, one year after the death of Miriam, something else happened. A very significant event. And that is that on the 10th of Nisan, the Jordan River was divided and Israel rose up and went into the Holy Land with wall of water on either, on either side. It's, you know that twice we've crossed on dry ground from a, a a, sea, a, a parting of water. One through the Red Sea and one through the Jordan. So we went into the trodden land, that we trod, went into the Holy Land, rather, we trod on it for the first time on the holy soil, it says here, and this is the book of our heritage, by the way. It says, among them, many who had come out of Egypt were, were there, the young ones and the, one, like the Levites. We read in the book of Yehoshua, and the people ascended... On, from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the eastern end of Jericho. Joshua 4.19. Our sages said that the mitzvah, listen to this, the mitzvah of their having prepared the Pesach sacrifice in their merit when they were in the Jordan for the Pesach sacrifice offered in Egypt was prepared on the tenth of Nisan. The verse states, therefore, on the tenth day of this month, Nisan, each man should take a lamb for the household and Shemot 12.2, and here the verse in Yehoshua says, and the people ascended from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. Yalkut Shimoni 15. So therefore, when we take the lamb on the tenth of Nisan, the lamb, the Pesach, equals entering into the land. The reason that we were able to enter into the land was because specifically of our taking of the lamb, which meant our rejection of idolatry. And I want to emphasize that, that ultimately everything comes down to that, the rejection of all other gods and all other deities aside from Hashem. And that's why we have to be so careful not to indulge in other pagan festivals. And I want to emphasize, by the way, because there's always people out there that are mentally unstable and unhinged. I'm talking about actual pagan festivals. The 4th of July is not a pagan festival. Thanksgiving is not a pagan festival. Um, The Peach Festival in Georgia is not a pagan festival. Okay? Uh, But there's unhinged people out there that want to find a demon in every doorknob 
uh, a fallen angel behind every rock. Um, and those people invest a lot in tinfoil hats. But I want us to stay sane. We're talking about actual pagan festivals. If you have a figurine of a lion on your bookshelf, it's probably not an idol. Unless it actually is an idol in some country. In which case, throw it out. But if it's just a figurine of a lion or a figurine of a, a donkey, you understand what I mean? You know the difference? Now, if you have the elephant head guy with multiple arms, okay, that's not okay. <laughs> but learn to make the difference. Don't walk into your neighbor's house or your friend's house and go, oh my gosh, you have a, you have a picture of a donkey and take your knife out and start slashing it. In the age of Facebook, I have to say these things. Now, the Midrash about Miriam the righteous. It says, and his sister stood at a distance. Why did Miriam stand at a distance when the infant Moses was placed in the river of the basket? Well, Rav Amram said in the name of, of Rav, because Miriam would prophesy, saying, my mother will give birth to a child who will save Israel. When Moses was born, the whole house was filled with light. Let me read that again because y'all missed that. When Moses was born, the whole house was filled with light. Her father stood up and kissed her and said, My daughter, your prophecy has been fulfilled. Therefore, it's for this reason the Torah refers to Miriam as a prophetess. Why is it she referred to the sister of Aaron in Scripture and not to the sister of Moses? Because her prophecy was said before Moses came. When Moses was placed in the river, Miriam's mother rebuked her and said, What has become of your prophecy, my daughter? This is why the verse says, And his sister stood at a distance to determine what would become of her prophecy. Sota 11b. And the sister stood at a distance that teaches us that, that a person is rewarded in the same manner in which he acts. Miriam waited by Moses at the bank of the river for a solid hour. And reward for her waiting, the omnipresent denied the entire encampment for her, the Aaron, the Shekinah, the Kohanim, the Levi'im, the seven clouds of glory, as it says in Bamibar 12, 15, and the people did not travel until Miriam rejoined them. Now, Rabbi Eliezer said, also Miriam died with the kiss of God. The kiss of God means a death free of pain and suffering. Rabbi, now isn't it interesting, you know, these died with the kiss of God, and Mashiach went with the kiss of Judah. The kiss of man is pain and suffering, but the kiss of God is no pain, no suffering. So when we want a, a, a human Messiah, just remember the kiss of a human is pain and suffering. The kiss of God is no suffering. Rabbi Ami, it's really cool to read this because when we went to Israel, with when I went to Israel with with my wife Shoshana and, and Rachel and Hadassah, we actually went, we were able to go to the tomb of Rabbi Ami, which is also at the tomb of Rambam. The Rabbi Ami said in Parakot Hukat, why does the account of Miriam's death immediately follow the law of the red heifer? Just as the red heifer brings atonement, so too does the passing of a righteous person. So Miriam's well, how was the well made? It was a sieve-like rock with water gushing out from it as from a spout. 
It traveled with the people and all their wanderings, ascending the hills with them and descending to the valleys. Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever Israel encamped, it would also encamp, settling opposite the entrance of the tent of meeting. The princes of the tribe of Israel would then approach, would walk around it with their staves in hand, and they would chant the words, Spring up, O well! Spring up, O well! You know how they would encircle the altar and chant, And Yeshua said, I am that well. It says, the water would then gush forth from the depths, spouting or shooting out as high as a pillar. Now, each one of the princes would direct the water with the staff to where their tribes and the household of their tribes were. There was so much water that any woman who desired to visit her friend in a neighboring tribe would have to travel by boat. what it says the water overflowed beyond the encampment where it surrounded a great plain where every conceivable kind of, of tree and vegetation grew the well was at the entrance of the courtyard near Moshe's tent through the waters of the well the people knew how to lay out their encampment how was this accomplished? So by the, by the, the, the well water actually showed them how to lay out the camp. They laid out their camp vis-a-vis the water. The waters of Torah. The waters of Torah teach us how to lay out our lives, how to lay out our camps. We travel to each other. We go to see each other vis-a-vis the water. Any, 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 any reason you see here why Yeshua made his base camp by the Sea of Galilee? Which, by the way, the Sea of Galilee is where the well of Miriam is said to be. So that out of, out of Galilee would come the Messiah from the exact place of where the well of Miriam was said to have landed. So it says, and how was this accomplished? How was the layout? It says, as soon as the curtains of the tabernacle were in position, as soon as the tabernacle went up, the princes of the twelve tribes would stand at the well and chant the well which the princes have dug. The waters which gushed forth from the well would then separate into different streams. One stream would surround the camp where the Shekinah rested, and from it four streams would branch out and flow to the four corners of the courtyard, each extending to the furthest point. From these streams, other streams would flow and form the boundaries between each tribe and each household. So that, you know, if you really think about it, this is like the original Venice. So it says, so that by flowing the, following rather the paths of the streams, everyone knew where he was supposed to camp. By following the paths of the, see this is why it says in Isaiah that they will follow my paths. Yeshua said, out of their bellies will flow rivers of living water. It says, one who wants to see Miriam's well should ascend to the top of Mount Carmel and look into the distance. And there you will see a sieve-like rock in the sea. This is talking about the Sea of Galilee. That's from Shabbat 35a. It says, some say there is a custom to draw water. Listen to this. Some say that there is a custom to draw water from a well at the end of Shabbat. For at that time, the water of Miriam's well fills all the other wells in the world. And whoever comes in contact with these waters or drinks from them is cured from all their 
illnesses. That's from Cole Bow. Now, the third drosh. <laughs> it's Shabbat Haggadah. Y'all okay? Okay, good. Oneg will be there. It's all right. Now, this is from the Haftarah. I mean, I mean the Haggadah. Because the custom is to read some from the Haggadah, specific portions, to familiarize us with the story and why we're about to do what we're going to do uh, for Passover. So this coming Wednesday night is the Pesach Seder. Your first cup of Kiddush should, be ha should happen after nightfall. Normally, when we say Kiddush, Somebody should say Kiddush, the leader, and everybody should say Amen. You can have Kiddush or not have Kiddush, normally, but not on Pesach. On Pesach, every man, woman, and child should have a glass of wine or kosher grape juice and should say Kiddush in unison and drink the, the cup, preferably all of it, if not most of it. Why? Because we were all set free from Egypt men, women, and children. The search for hamets takes place on the previous night. So in this case, Tuesday night. You search for hamets. The next morning it should be burned. You should burn the hamets. And if you use a wooden spoon and the feather like it's tradition, you should burn the wooden spoon and the feather with the hamets. You're... Roughly speaking, by 10 o'clock in the morning on that Wednesday morning, there should be no more hamats eaten or consumed. If you're a firstborn in your family, firstborn male particularly, you should fast on that day, the day before the Pesach Seder. In this case, Wednesday during the day, if you're a firstborn. It's the only fasting that's allowed during Nisan is to fast on that day. Naturally, everything should be, we should get all the hamets out of our house. You know, a lot of people wring their hands, and I understand. People say, should I, can I get rid of this or get rid of that? You know, there's, in, feel free to ask, and we'll, we'll tackle those problems, and, and we'll answer them. But let me just throw out a, a general overarching idea. If you're in doubt, throw it out. If it's a bottle of ketchup, what's a bottle of ketchup? It's a dollar. Are you going to quibble over a dollar? Let's say you had a box of stuff. You're not really sure. Maybe it's hummus. Maybe it's not. I'm not really sure. Talking the whole box, 20 bucks. Come on. Come on. I think sometimes we're like, oh, I can't throw out this big thing of, 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 of waffle mix. Why? Oh, it's a big thing. It's $3. Throw it away. Or donate it if you want to. In other words, because I, I, I know people get into this mindset. It's like, well, just throw it out. Who cares? Go out and get it. Well, there's a pandemic. There's still tomato sauce, you know. And even if there wasn't, you can't survive without mayonnaise. I'm just saying. It's a dry sandwich. So what? At least you have a sandwich. Right? Sometimes we get a little crazy. Toilet paper's not hummus, so you can keep that. Don't forget your dog food and cat food and things like that. Don't forget your drinks. Beer is chametz. Uh, 
Whiskey is chametz, but rum isn't. Potato vodka isn't. Zal knows that. Yavol. <laughs> right? Uh, tequila is made out of, uh, <laughs> was that you, Zekinyo? Zekinyo said, tequila, tequila. <laughs> Having fun, right? There's been a problem uh, for some people to not be able to get a uh, lamb shank. Um, so in lieu of a lamb shank, I, I did not know this. This is a new discovery for me this year because I've never had to worry about it. It's always been lamb shank, no, not a problem. But evidently, uh, using a chicken thigh bone or a chicken neck bone is also appropriate. So you can use that. Um, I think that if you live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I think there are lamb shakes available now at Kosher Palette. But um, you can use that. The lamb shank bone, you also have a uh, hard-boiled egg. The hard-boiled egg symbolizes mourning, but it's not just about that. The hard-boiled egg actually represents, very important, represents the Hagiga offering. So the lamb shank represents the Pesach, and the hard-boiled egg represents the Hagiga, the two lambs of Passover, the two Mashiachs. Some have the custom of actually eating a hard-boiled egg previous to the meal and doing so in the memory of the Hagiga offering, which I particularly like that um, idea. So the Haggadah, this is where we begin reading. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. This is answering the why of what we do and how we do it. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, but God our God took us out from there with a strong hand, with an outstretched arm. Devarim 6.21. By the way, we drink four glasses of wine or kosher grape juice on Pesach. There's reasons why we do, but one of the reasons is because it corresponds to the divine name, Yudke Vavke. So each glass represents to the divine name. If the Holy One, blessed be He, had not taken our ancestors out of Egypt, then our children and our children's children would still be enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. Even if we were all men of wisdom, people of understanding, experience, and knowledge in the Torah, we would still be obligated to tell the story of the exodus from Egypt. It doesn't matter. You say, I know the story. I've watched the Charlton Heston movie five times. I don't need to tell the story. The reality is, no matter what our level, we're all obligated to retell the story every time. And it says, and whoever discusses the exodus from Egypt at length is praiseworthy, meaning that we should spend more time, not less time, studying the, studying the story at the Pesach Seder. In the beginning, our ancestors were idol worshipers, but now all the all-present one has brought us close to him and his worship, as the verse states, Yehoshua said to all the people, that is, this is what God, the God of Israel, said, your ancestors live, used to live across the river, Terak, Avraham's father, and Nakor, Nakor's father, and they served foreign gods. Again, serving foreign gods is the problem. But I took your father Avraham from across the river, and I led him through the whole land of Canaan. I multiplied his offspring, and I gave him Yitzhak, and to Yitzhak I gave Yaakov and Esav. To Esav I gave Mount Seir to possess it, and Yaakov and his sons went down to Mitzrayim. Joshua 24, 2-4. Blessed is he who keeps his promises to the Jewish people, 
blessed is he. For the Holy One, blessed be he, calculated the end when he would carry out what he had told our father Avram at the covenant of the parts. As the verse states, and he said to Avram, you should know that your, your descendants will be as strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Then I will pronounce judgment on the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will leave with great wealth. Genesis 15, 13-14. And it is this that has stood by our fathers and for us. For not just one alone has risen against us to destroy us, but in each and every generation they rise against us to destroy us. The Holy One, blessed be He, saves us from their hand. The Egyptians treated us badly. They made us suffer, and they imposed hard labor upon us. Devarim 26.6 The Egyptians treated us badly, the Haggadah says. As the verse states, Come, let us act cunningly with them, lest they increase. For if a war will occur, they will join our enemies and fight against us and depart from the land. Shemot 1.10 They made us suffer. The verse says, They appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built storage cities for Pharaoh, Pisum, and Ramses, Shemot 1.11. They imposed hard labor upon us. As the verse says, the Egyptians enslaved the children of Israel with crushing labor. And we cried out to God, the God of our forefathers, and God heard our voice, and he saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression, Devarim 26.7. And we cried out to God and the God of our forefathers. As the verse says, after many days had passed, the king of Egypt died, the children of Israel groaned from the hard work, and they cried out. And their prayers, prompted by the hard work, rose up to God. Shemot 2.23 God heard our voice. As the verse says, God heard their voice, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And he saw our affliction. Our affliction, referring to the separation of husband and wife. As the verse says, God saw the children of Israel, and God took note. Our toil. This means the decree against the children, as the verse says, Every boy who is born, is born to you shall be cast into denial, and every girl shall be kept alive. And our oppression. This means the pressure, as the verse says, And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So Devarim 26.8 says, God brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand, with an outstretched arm, with great awe, with signs and wonders. God brought us out of Egypt, not through the angel, not through a seraph, not through a messenger, but it was the Holy One, blessed be he, he himself, his glory, as the verse says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on this night, and I will slay all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the man to beast, and upon all the gods of Egypt, I will perform acts of judgment. I will pass through the land of Egypt, I am not an angel. I will slay all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I and not a seraph. Upon all the gods of Egypt, I will perform acts of judgment, I and not a messenger. I, God, it is I and none other. So much for a human Messiah. God says it's going to be me that delivers you, not a human, not an agent, not anybody else. With a strong hand, I said that... Um, that the four glasses represent the Yudke Vavke. One of the first promises is with a strong hand that God is going to deliver us out. The first letter of God's name is Yud. 
a hand, an arm. With an outstretched arm, this refers to the sword, as it says, his sword is drawn in his hand, the hay representing the Ruach of God, the spirit of the Shekinah of God that comes and works his miracles. With great awe, referring to the revelation of the Shekinah, the divine presence, the redemptive power of the Vav, the man who comes and brings redemption to us. And with signs and wonders, God is going to take us into the land through his hay, through his spirit, through blood, fire, and smoke. The ten plagues are blood, frogs, lice, wild creatures, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and slaying of the firstborn. And one final reading. The elements of the Pesach Seder itself. The three main elements. The Pesach, the Matzah, and the bitter herbs. The Pesach. The Paschal lamb that our ancestors ate when the holy temple stood is for what reason? Now, we don't have lamb at our Pesach Seder these days. Why? Because the lamb that is eaten or was eaten at the Pesach Seder was a sacrifice. It was a literal sacrifice. It was sacrificed at the temple. The blood poured out was taken home and roasted. Some people object to this, and I understand because they don't understand. They object because they say, the scripture says to have the Passover. That's true, it does. And the Passover was a sacrifice offered on the altar. If you go down to Winn-Dixie and you buy lamb and you put it in your oven and you bake it, and you eat it that night, you're not fulfilling the mitzvah anyway, number one. Number two, you're creating, God forbid, a cholul Hashem because you're insinuating and implying that you are fulfilling the mitzvah, which would mean that you're eating of a sacrifice, which is a major sin since there isn't a temple. Okay? Very important. It's not something to be trifled with, and it's not something to be played games with. Remember what I said, we've got to leave idolatry and embrace the will of God. A lot of things, what we think are sins are not, and what we think are not sins are. This is one of those things. Big deal. It was because God passed over our father's homes in Egypt, as the verse says, you should say it is a paschal offering to God because he passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, and he spared our household. Then the people bowed down and prostrated themselves. Exodus 12, 27. The matzah. Now Yeshua said, eat this bread. He's talking about the matzah. This is my body. So I just got through saying, we don't eat lamb at Passover. But if you eat matzah, you're actually eating the lamb. So it says, the matzah, unleavened bread that we eat is for what reason? Because the dough of our fathers did not have time to become leavened before the king. The king of kings, holy and blessed be he, revealed himself to them and redeem them, as the verse says, they baked the dough that they had taken out of Egypt into cakes of matzah, for it had not leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, but had also not prepared any provisions. Shemot 12.39. And the bitter herbs, or as Hadassah says, herbs. This mawor, the bitter herbs that we eat, is for what reason? 
Because the Egyptians embittered our ancestors' lives in Egypt, as the verse says, and they embittered their lives with hard labor, with mortar and with bricks, and with all the kinds of labor in the field, all their work that they had made them do with crushing labor. And each and every generation, this is the most important thing, we're going to conclude with this. In each and every generation, a person must see himself as if he had personally left Egypt. As the verse states, you shall tell your sons on that day, saying, is because of this that God did for me when I left Egypt. Exodus 13 and verse 8. It was not only for our forefathers that the Holy One blessed be, He redeemed us, but He redeemed us with them too, as the verse says, He brought us out from there to bring us to the land which He swore to our forefathers and gives to us. Deuteronomy 6.23. When we sit down at the Pesach Seder on this Wednesday night, we need to all remember that this is our story. This has happened to us. This is, yes, personal to us. It's not about what happened to our fathers or, God forbid, what happened to them, but what God has done for us and is doing for us. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Amen.